We are ending off our book series through the book of Joel um, today. We have been through uh, five Sundays, five Sundays in the book of Joel. And today is our last sermon, the last sermon, chapter three on the book of Joel. Just to recap, just to catch you up or just to remind you of what we've been going through. So chapter one was a past day of the Lord. This book is a, just a book on the day of the Lord, okay? It's recounting several days of the Lord. Days of the Lord is a moment where God comes to earth, visits earth to correct a, a cre- his creation that is in disorder and bring it back to order. And that usually involves punishment of evil and restoration of good, right? Punishment of wickedness and restoration of his righteous ones. And so in, the, in chapter one, we see um, a nation that has already experienced the day of the Lord. Okay, and, they, and their land has become, gone from a, de, from a garden to become like a desert. Okay, that's in chapter one. Then chapter two, we see prophesied an imminent, imminent day of the Lord. A day of the Lord is about to happen. An army is going to invade the land. Okay, but in chapter two, we also see God's heart for his people. That the reason why this is all happening is not because he's vindictive, because he hates them. No, it's because he loves them. He longs to see them prosper. He longs to see them flourish. If they would return to him, he would bless them. And in last week, we came to that pivotal verse, um, pivotal passage in Joel chapter 2, verse 28, where it talks about the Spirit being poured out on all people, regardless of social status, ethnicity, age. Everyone who turns to God will have the Holy Spirit. And that for us, okay, for them, for the Jews, right, it was um, a future prophecy. For us, it's a reminder, right, of what has already happened. It's past tense for us, right, because that has happened at the day of Pentecost, where the Holy Spirit was poured out on all people. Therefore, if you are part of God's family, if you have faith in Christ, you have the Holy Spirit. You have the Holy Spirit, and that is amazing. In chapter 3, we see prophesied the final day of the Lord, the ultimate day of the Lord, where God will come and judge not just Jews, not just the people around them, but the entire world, okay? And what would that day look like? And so for us, we are living in between chapter 2 and chapter 3. That's where we sit. We're in between chapter 2 and chapter 3. Chapter 2 has already happened for us, but chapter 3, we are still waiting So, if you can turn with me in your Bibles to Joel chapter 3, we're going to read the entire chapter. We're going to read the entire chapter. Okay, Joel chapter 3, verse 1 to 21, the the slides will not have the verse because it's just so so, so long. So, so I'm asking you to turn with me in your Bibles or your phones and open up to Joel chapter 3 and follow along with me. In those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. There I will put them on trial for what they did to my inheritance, my people Israel, because they scattered my people among the nations and divided up my land. They cast lots for my people and traded boys for prostitutes and sold girls for wine to drink. Verse 4, now what have you against me, Tyre and Sidon? And all you regions of Philistia, are you repaying me for something I've done? If you are paying me back, I will swiftly and speedily return on your own heads what you have done. For you took my silver and my gold and carried off my finest treasures to your temples. You sold the people of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks that you might send them far from their homeland. 
See, I am going to rouse them out of the places to which you sold them, and I will return on your own heads what you have done. I will sell your sons and daughters to the people of Judah, and they will sell them to the Sabaeans, a nation far away. The Lord has spoken. Verse 9, proclaim this among the nations, prepare for war, rouse the warriors, let all the fighting men draw near and attack. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning forts, hooks into spears. Let the weaklings say, I am strong. Come quickly, all you nations from every side and assemble there. Bring down your warriors, Lord. Let the nations be roused. Let them advance into the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge all the nations on every side. Swing the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, trample the grapes, for the winepress is full and the vats overflow. So great is their wickedness. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near. In the valley of decision, the sun and moon will be darkened and the stars no longer shine. The Lord will roar from Zion and thunder from Jerusalem. The earth and the heavens will tremble, but the Lord will be a refuge for his people, a stronghold for the people of Israel. Then you will know that I, the Lord your God, dwell in Zion, my holy hill. Jerusalem will be holy. Never again will foreigners invade her. In that day, the mountains will drip new wine and the hills will flow with milk and all the ravines of Judah will run with water. A fountain will flow out of the, of the Lord's house and will water the valley of Acacias. But Egypt will be desolate. Edom, a desert waste, because of violence done to the people of Judah, in whose land they shed innocent blood. Judah will be inhabited forever, and Jerusalem through all generations. Shall I leave their innocent blood unavenged? No, I will not. The Lord dwells in Zion. Okay, so that describes the final day of the Lord. The final day of the Lord. When God returns, this is what it will look like. Now, it is couched in the context of the Jews in that time, okay? It's using their kind of language. So what does this mean for us today? Well, let's look at it, what it means for them first. Okay, so who is being judged? On this day, God is going to judge the nations. So this, God distinguishes between the nations and his people, Judah and Jerusalem, okay? So in context, the nations refer to the Gentile nations, those who are non-Jewish, so the question that I asked myself and asked the passage was, well, does that mean that I'm going to be judged on this day? Because I'm, I'm not a Jew, right? And many of us here, I'm assuming, are not Jews. So does that mean that you will be judged too? You are among the nations? Good news. Good news is 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 10 says, and remember, 1 Peter um, is a letter that was addressed to predominantly Gentile Christians. And to them, to Gentile Christians, he says... Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Here's the good news. Christians, believers, you are considered part of God's people. God's people. Therefore, in context that for us, the nations refers to everyone outside of God's people. People who are against God. But we who are for God, we are part of God's people now. Okay, so when we look at this, a lot of it, um, a lot of the judgment prophecies are not for us because we are God's people, right? 
the blessings and restoration, they are for us because we are God's people, if that makes sense. Yeah? So they are being judged. The people that are against God are being judged. Now, why are they being judged? Well, in short, very simply, they've done some bad things. There's some bad things, right? Some things are listed here, and some nations are specifically mentioned, like Tyre, Sidon, the districts of Philistia, Egypt, and Edom. Essentially, these nations are guilty of being enemies of Israel. They've done some bad things to Israel. Um, Tyre and Sidon and the districts of Philistia, they were coastal regions that people think um, most likely benefited or contributed to the kidnapping and selling of Jewish um, prisoners of war. So they would kidnap them and sell them to other people, right? This is terrible. Selling human beings, and you see that in, in the early verses, right? You, you have sold my people, my, a boy for a prostitute, a girl for a drink of wine, right? And this is horrendous. You have abused God's people, and God hates this. He also mentions Egypt and Edom, which, who are perpetual enemies of Israel. They are always at Israel, a thorn in Israel's side. And so God says to them, you've done some pretty bad things. But that's, it's not just because they've done bad things, right? It's that the, bad, the evil has reached a breaking point, right? It's reached a point where it's overflowing. You see in verse 13 that he uses harvest imagery to describe how much, how great their evil, how great their wickedness has become. It uses um, imagery like a wine press that is overflowing. If you remember in, when, we were, when I was talking about chapter one and how our evil is like poured out into a cup and that cup slowly fills up and, and the day of the Lord is that emptying of that cup. The same image here. The evil of the nations has been filling this wine press and is, is overflowing now. And God has to do something about it. Now, here's the interesting thing that I want to bring your attention to. God takes these mistreatments against his people personally. He takes it personally. Do you notice that? In verse 4 and 5, he says, Now what have you against me? What have you against me, Tyre and Sidon and you regions of Elysia? Are you paying me for something I have done? You have taken my silver, my gold, and carried off my finest treasures to your temples. The nations have not just mistreated Israel, they have mistreated God. When you're an enemy of God's people, you're not just an enemy of God's people, you're an enemy of God himself. And that, I don't know about you, that's extremely comforting. That's extremely comforting because the abuse that you, you bear in this life the mistreatments that you have, have endured, the abuse, maybe the injustice, the persecution that you endure in this, you experience in this life, God takes that personally. I mean, parents, those who are parents, think about it. Imagine you saw your child being bullied in front of you, right? Imagine that, or for those who aren't parents, imagine that you see a clip of a baby being abused, right? Imagine that. So, so, but parents, imagine you saw your child being abused in front of you, just someone just degrading them, just making them feel like nothing. How would you feel? Would you feel like, well, sucks to be them. They gotta learn someday. You know, is that, is that how you're gonna react? Or are you gonna take it personally? Are you gonna take it personally and do something about it? 
How are you going to react? I, got, I mean, being a father of a one-year-old, if anyone mistreats, abuses, or degrades my child, my daughter, in any shape, degree, or fashion, I will be over at that house so quick, my sturdiest Bible to beat them over the head with it. Hey, that. <laughs> it's a joke, right, for those who are watching online. But, um, but, but seriously, I would be pretty annoyed, right? I'd be furious. And that's just a glimpse. That's just a glimpse of how God sees us when his people are mistreated, when his people suffer. Don't think that his silence is apathy. That just because he doesn't do anything at that moment that he doesn't care. Oh, he cares. He's like that furious parent that's going, you just wait. You just wait. I will make things right. I will protect my people. Your suffering is seen by God. He does care about it. And this passage here tells us one thing very clearly. You can be confident that God will do something about it. That's incredible. So how are God's enemies going to be judged? How are the people that are against him going to be judged? Well, there's three things that are described here, essentially. Okay, one is there's going to be a global harvest. There's going to be a global harvest. Jesus used um, this harvest imagery uh, when he taught about the end of the age as well. In Matthew 13, verse 39, he says, The harvest is the end of the age, and the harvesters are angels. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into a blazing furnace, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father, where his ears let them hear. And do you see that a similar image is painted? A similar description is we, we just read in Joel chapter 3, right? In verse 1. In those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. There I'll put them on trial for what they have done to my inheritance, my people Israel, because they have scattered my people among the nations and divided up my land. That phrase, restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, the way it's phrased and the way it's translated makes us think um, that he's talking about wealth or blessings, right? Prosperity. Um, because fortunes is typically how we, that's how we interpret fortunes. Um, but actually, a better translation, a clearer translation is um, translating that word fortune to captivity. God is going to restore the people from their captivity. Right? If you look at the original word, it actually means captivity. So God is going to restore the, the people of Israel from their captivity and he's going to gather them to be on his holy mountain in Jerusalem. And what's he going to do with the rest of the people? Well, he's going to gather them in the valley of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat simply directly translates to Yahweh judges. So in this valley, there will be judgment. God will make a decision. Another term that's used for this valley is the valley of decision. What it's saying here is that, okay, the time for you to decide whether to follow God, whether to submit to his rule is over. The time for you to decide is over. The time for God to decide has come. God is going to make a decision on what is going to happen to you. And that's going to happen in the valley. But let me ask you this. Where are God's people? They're with him 
on his holy mountain. They will be gathered on his holy mountain where there's restoration, where there's protection, where there's healing, where there's abundance in his presence. Now this gathering, so, that, so I want you to have in your mind this picture of these group of people being gathered on a mountain and these group of people being gathered in a valley. What do you see happening to these people? There's a separation, right? There's a separation of these people, right? Um, in, when Jesus talked about the end of the age, he also uses this imagery where in the parables of wheat and weeds, the wheat will be gathered in one place, the wheat, weeds will be gathered in another place. In the parable of the sheep and goats, right? He says the sheep will be gathered on my right, the goats will be gathered on my left. Similar thing here, right? God's people and God's people who are against God will be separated. There'll be a distinction made between them. Because right now, in the world that we live, right, we're all mixed up with one another, right? We all live with each other. We all influence one another. We're all mixed up in each other's lives. We all influence one another, right? Even within the church, even within the church, right, there are those who sincerely have the Holy Spirit. They follow Jesus. They submit to his rule in their lives. Even though they struggle and sometimes fail, they're still following him, right? They're God's people. But you also have people in the church who don't really do that, right? They come to church, but they're not really following Jesus, right? And we're all mixed up in one another's lives. We're all mixed together. But it's saying on this day, God's going to draw the line. He's going to say, you who are with me, you're going to be with me. Those who are not with me, you're going to be gathered in the valley, He's going to make a distinction between those who are for him and those who are against him. And what is going to happen to the people that are for him and those who are against him? Well, there's going to be a grand reversal. There's going to be a grand global reversal of fortunes, right? For Israel, they've been oppressed. They've been scattered. They've been exiled. They've been harassed for so long. And God is promising them, you know what? The people that harassed you, they're going to be harassed. The people that oppress you, they're going to be oppressed. The people that cursed you, they will be cursed. Right? The people that scattered you among the nations, they will be scattered among the nations. It's talking a reversal. And instead, you will be blessed. You will be gathered. Your cities will be inhabited. You will prosper. You get this? So this is a great reversal. But what does that mean for us? What does that mean for us? Or what does that mean for them? What, what would it look like? In 17 verse 18, it describes what will happen to the people of Israel. It says, Then you will know that I, the Lord your God, dwell in Zion, my holy hill. Jerusalem will be holy. Never again will foreigners or people that are against God invade her. In that day, the mountains will drip new wine and the hills will flow with milk and the ravines of Judah will run with water. A fountain will flow out of the Lord's house and will water the valley of Acacias. Now you've got to understand for them, they're imagining this land that they have that's a desert, remember, right? It's a desert still. And they're imagining mountains flowing with water, the, the, the fields green, dripping with fruit and abundance, right? It's, this is an image that they can literally see. They, they, can, they can see with their mind's eye, okay? But for us, right, it's hard to see because, you know, we go outside and we see real highway and go, mm, what's this going to look like? You know, but, so what does it look for us? What does it look like for us? I mean, honestly, no description can possibly do justice to this. I mean, imagine, imagine a, an all-expense all paid trip to a destination of your choice. 
imagine that. You don't have the, you can just rest. You can just travel around. You can just enjoy God's, God's creation without worrying that it will break your bank account, right? Just imagine that kind of world. Imagine a world where there is no hunger, no poverty, no, no risk of COVID. Imagine a world with no COVID. Oh, that would be amazing. That, that would be the day. Well, imagine that kind of world where there's perfect order, perfect peace. You're kind of getting a glimpse of what this day will be like. Um, what do you see when you see Jesus on earth? What do you see him doing? You see through him people's lives being transformed. Those who are oppressed by evil are set free. Those who are poor are made abundant in him. They're not given wealth, but they're given something so much more. They're fulfilled. They're made whole. You see people being set free, eyes opened, deaf hearing. You see people being made whole and flourishing as they should be. You see God making, recreating the world and bringing it back to order. That is what he's going to do. What Jesus began, he will finish. What we see in Jesus is just the beginning. It's just the beginning. But what you see in Joel chapter 3 is the finality. It's what it's all leading up to. And we see this perfectly described in Revelations. We could not possibly talk about Joel chapter 3 without talking about Revelations 21 and 22. I want to bring you there very quickly, okay? Then I saw a new heaven and new earth. A new heaven and new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Now, when you're reading this, don't separate it from Joel chapter 3. They're describing the same thing. Joel chapter 3 is the Old Testament version of Revelation 21. Okay? I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. Now, jumping down to verse 21, uh, to verse 27 of chapter 21, nothing impure will ever enter it. Right? You see the similarity there with Joel chapter 3? Right? No foreigners will invade her ever again. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Chapter 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. Amen. That is what God is going to do. That's what we see described, a glimpse of what is described in Joel chapter 3. Right? We see this river flowing down, right, in verse 18, verse 17, Right? We see it's the, the, the land is going to drip with milk and honey. It's going to be an abundant place of rest where God dwells. What is it describing? It's describing a return back to what we were meant to be. It's meant to, in fact, recall, make us recall the Garden of Eden. When God first created the world, God is going to return it back to how he intended it to be. 
a land that is abundant, where your work, you're not, you're not dreading Monday, where it's like, oh man, I have to work. You're like, I get to work. I get to work because it's such a joy. It's such a blessing. It's returned back to fulfillment, satisfaction, rest in him. You'll be working, but you'll be resting at the same time because you'll be enjoying his presence, worshiping him in what you do. And everyone will be like that. Everyone will be like that. That is incredible. That is the future hope that we have. That is what it looks like when God returns to rule his creation. And that ultimately is what we're talking about here. What is going to happen on that final day? The king is going to return. The king is going to return. The last verse of chapter 3 says it all. The Lord dwells in Zion. God is returning to rule his creation once again as king. It is described in Job chapter 3 as him returning to Jerusalem to once again dwell among his people. God will reign there. And where God reigns, there is flourishing, there is healing, there is abundance. That is what happens when the king reigns. He makes everything right and good. This is our hope in God, as the people of God. Now, when I talk about this hope that we have in him, when we read something like Job chapter 3, and when we read passages like Revelations 21, it's this awesome image of this future day. And it looks incredible. But for some of us, maybe it's so distant that it's kind of detached. That it's like, that's cool. But it's so detached from what I'm experiencing right now. Right? It's so detached from right now what I'm experiencing and the things that I'm seeing. What do I do with this hope that I have? What is, what is the power of this hope? So I want to end our time together by talking, just addressing what it means to have this hope in Christ. Um, first thing I want to say about hope is that it is not optimism. Hope is not optimism. There's a difference. Optimism tells you to change how you see your situation. Hope tells you to change what you look at. Get the difference? Optimism tells you, you know, put on rose-tinted glasses, you know, have a forced smile, pretend almost that things are okay, or things could be worse, or you know what, it's, it's, it's not that bad, right? Pretend that it's okay. Optimism, but hope is different. Hope doesn't ask you to deny how difficult your situation is right now. It doesn't ask you to ignore the pain that you're feeling or the discomfort that you're feeling experiencing right now. Hope instead asks you to shift your eyes from your circumstance onto God. The, the two words for um, hope, that are used for hope in Hebrew, and both actually can be translated as to wait. To wait. Therefore, to hope in God is to wait on him. To hope means to wait. It means to hope in God therefore means to wait for him to prove that he is who he says he is and he will do what he says he will do. That's what hope means. Even when your circumstances, even when your situations, 
even when your body tells you otherwise. Hope gives you and has given Christians this immeasurable, unshakable strength in times of extreme pressure. In fact, Christianity historically has bloomed and prospered most when it has been most attacked, most persecuted, most under pressure. Why? It's because of this hope that we have in God, that whatever the situation may be, we have this hope in us that we can wait. We can wait. We can persevere because we are waiting for God to prove himself to be faithful to what he says he will do and who he says he is. See, what gets Christians through difficult times is not catchy one-liners. Turn that frown upside down, you'll be okay. Or um, things like, you know, believing that your best life is now and therefore think positive and positivity will come to you. Those things don't get Christians through their difficult situations in their life. What gets Christians, those who persevere to the end, those who see and experience Revelations 21, what gets them through is this hope that they have in God, that God is good, even though my situation doesn't seem good. That God is just, even though I have just experienced gross injustice. That God will restore all things, even though right now my body is breaking down. There is this hope that we have that is unshakable because God is unshakable. Therefore, if you hope in Christ, you can be certain, you can be certain he will come through for you. And you can be certain, confident, that what you see in Joel chapter 3 and Revelation 21 will happen. It will happen. That's hope. That's hope. That's waiting on God. That's persevering in him. Therefore, whatever situation we go through, if we turn our eyes on Jesus, it gives us strength to persevere. The second thing I want to talk about hope is that it is it's not just for the future. It's not just for the future. It's actually partially for now. When we read about Joel chapter 3 and what it looks like when the king returns, and when we read about and we see this future hope that we have in Christ in Revelation 21, uh, we go, wow, that's incredible. That's what it looks like when God rules. Let me ask you this. Does God rule now? Where does he rule? Where, does God, where is God's presence right now? If that is a picture of what happens when God's presence is fully manifested, let me ask you this. Where is God's presence right now? In you. In every believer. Because we read in Joel chapter 2, verse 28, all people have the Holy Spirit now. Right? Therefore, where does God's presence dwell? In his temple, in his body, which is the church, which is you, which is us. This is where God's presence dwells. What would happen then? What would happen if his presence, if his rule was truly manifest in our lives and on, in this place? What would happen? What would we see? 
what would we begin to experience? I think we would begin to experience Joshua chapter 3. I think we'll begin to experience Revelation 21. Now, don't mistake me, right? I'm not saying that we can experience everything right now. But I think we can experience more than we think. Because if that is the culmination, when God's glory and his presence is, and his rule is established over all creation, what can happen if one creation, what can happen if one community bows its knee to God and allows him to use them and manifest his glory through them? What can happen? I'll tell you what can happen. Rivers of living water can flow through us. Jesus said it himself. John chapter 7, verse 37, 38. On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Why come to him? Because he's the temple of God. He's the fullness of the presence of God. Right? Therefore, in him is the river of life. You know that fountain that we read in John chapter 3? The fountain that flows through the, through the valley? You know that fountain, that river of life that flows through the center of the New Jerusalem? Where was that? Where is that? In Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ. And what happens next? Whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. So what is possible when his people, when God's people own who they are in him? when they bow their knees to the king. Because let me tell you this, the king has already come and his name is Jesus. And he now is on earth reigning through his body, the church. But the problem is his body doesn't always submit to him. His body doesn't always represent him. His body sometimes dams up the river with their own agendas, with their own selfishness, with their own things that got going on. But let me tell you, when we unblock those things, when we start laying down the things that, that we got going on, when we start laying down our own glory, when we start, start laying down our crowns and allow the river of life that is within us, the Holy Spirit to flow through us and in us, let me tell you this, there'll be healing in the nations. People will be set free. We're gonna see Christ's rule what do you see Christ doing when he's on earth? People are set free. Blind see, lame walk. People are made whole. Relationships. What you heard in Married for Life, that testimony is beautiful because that's just a glimpse of what he does. Can you imagine what would happen if every single person here bowed their knee completely to Jesus Christ, the King, and allowed the King to once again rule our lives completely what would happen? It's what we've been talking about throughout this entire season of the Holy Spirit is there'll be more. There'll be greater things. Perhaps even greater things that we can imagine. It's what you read about in Scripture, in Revelation 21. There's going to be healing. There's going to be prosperity. There's going to be abundance. Don't take this materialistically. Take this scripturally. Through you, a river of life can flow to bring deliverance and healing to your community, to bring healing and deliverance to your life, to your friends, to your family. When God grips a person's life, just one person's life, the world is never the same again. What would happen if all of us, city campus, all of you, what would happen in Watertown if God gripped you, if you bowed your knee before God? 
I think we would see a bit of heaven on earth. Amen? What would happen if our connect groups, whenever we gather, right, we're not gossiping against one another, we're not, we're not thinking about one whispering in, in secret, you know, oh, this person I heard, but this person, you know. No, we're loving one another, we're forgiving one another, we're acting compassionately, lovingly. Why is it that Jesus said, oh, why, did, why is it that he prayed? If my people just love one another, we would, the world would see me. Christ would be glorified. It's because of this. If only we would love one another and bow our knees before God and, and live as, as the Holy Spirit leads us to live. The world will start to see the kingdom of heaven manifest itself on earth through us, through the church. Therefore, this hope is not just our confidence, it's not just our security, it's not just a promise for the future that it gives us strength for the now. It is also a present day reality that we can begin to experience right now. If, if we will return to the Lord and allow the King to once again rule our lives. Amen. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. I want to give an opportunity for three responses. Uh, the first is are those that you don't know Jesus. And you know what? There's actually so much that I have not said about him. But you do know this. You do want to bow your knee to the king. And that's a huge thing, to bow your knee to King Jesus. You acknowledge that he is ruler of all. And you want to bow your knee to him. I want you to raise your hands. I would love to pray for you. I would love to pray for you. If you want to make that decision today, I would love to pray for you. If there's anyone here, I want to give you the opportunity to do that. If you want to make that decision today, no one's looking around. This is your decision. Awesome. Okay. The second group of people that I want to pray for and invite a response from are those that actually, like Pastor Dan shared, um, before, those who are going through circumstances where you're struggling. You're actually struggling to hope in God. You're struggling to even, maybe even trust in God that He is still good, that He is still just because the situations that you're going through just don't seem to be consistent with a good and just and loving Father. To you, I want to offer an opportunity to hope again, to trust again. There's something in you that goes, you know what? I'm not going to give up. I'm not going to give up. I'm going to hang on because I believe that God is who He says He is and He will do what He says He will do. I want to pray for you. you just, can you just lift up your hands nice and high? And I would love to pray for you today. If that is you. You see that hand on my left? I see the hand on my left as well. Are there any more? See the hand in front of me? Lift up your hand nice and high. I would love to pray for you that you will be strengthened today so you can persevere for tomorrow. That is, you just raise your hand nice and high until I acknowledge you, and I would love to pray for you. Every head bowed, every eyes closed, no one looking around. Awesome. And the last group of people are those that want to submit to the King again. Your life hasn't been, hasn't been lived in submission to Him. 
The Holy Spirit, you have not even paid attention to him. But you believe that if the king rules your life again, he would use you to be a blessing to the people around you. You want that. So you want to submit to the king again. Raise your hand nice and high. And I want to pray for you. Raise your hand nice and high. I would love to pray for you. See those hands. See those hands. Raise your hand nice and high. And I would love to pray for you. I see that hand. Incredible. Anyone else? What would happen if the church was once again owned their identity and who they were and submitted again to the king? The world would never be the same again. Your community would never be the same again. Your families would never be the same again. Raise your hand nice and high. I'd love to pray for you. Okay, awesome. So many hands. Let me pray for those groups of people. Father, for those people who are going through situations and circumstances that are not pleasant, that are not good, and no one would say it is good. They are in pain and they're struggling to to maybe even hope in you, to maybe even wait on you, to maybe even trust that you are still good, you are still loving, because this, what they're going through, it just doesn't seem right. But Lord, I pray that you renew their hope, oh Lord. I pray that you give them this assurance by your Holy Spirit, that you are still alive, that you are still good, that you still care about them, that you see what they're going through. You have not left them. You have not abandoned them. You see them and you will restore them. You will restore them. You have promised it. You will do it. That you are who you say you are. You are good. You are loving. You are gracious. You are faithful. You are all those things. And you will be those things to them. So Lord, I pray, strengthen them. Strengthen their legs so that they'll keep walking. They'll not give up. Oh, if they're faint, I pray that you strengthen them and that they will soar with eagle's wings with you, O Lord. I pray, O God, that you restore them, O Lord. And I pray, O God, for this situation, whatever it is, that you will bring healing, that you will bring restoration because that is who you are. So I pray that with confidence in your name. And I pray for those, the many, many of my brothers and sisters in Christ who once again want to submit their knee before you, want to bow their knee to you, the King of kings and Lord of lords, and want you to reign over their lives who want their lives to be a source of living water. Lord, I pray, O oh God, that today will be a day of repentance. Today will be a day of victory, O oh Lord, because today is the day where the, their own crowns are being laid down. Their throne is being toppled and your throne is being erected in their life. And so, Lord, I pray, O oh God, that you use them mightily and that you fill them with your Holy Spirit even now. And that, Lord, I pray, O oh God, that you will show them and you will transform them to be the salt and light of the world. Not just to think that way, but, or, or to hope that will be the case, but to be that today. And Lord, I pray, O oh God, they'll walk according to your ways. They'll walk with you in line with your Holy Spirit. They'll listen to what you are doing and saying and speaking to them. And Lord, I pray, O oh God, that as we are obedient to you, as we submit ourselves to you, O oh Lord, we will see your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Come, let's stand and let's worship God together. And you know, I want to, some of these things that we've been, that I prayed for, the people that have responded, I actually want to open up this, um, this space in front of us for prayer. We would love to be able to pray with you, to solidify that, to consolidate that in your life today. 
And so if you're, if you're able, come to the front. We would love to pray for you. Let's sing.